Well, hello, you beautiful seven-figure millennial listener, and welcome back to another episode of the Seven Figure Millennials podcast, where it is my job to uncover the winning strategies to help you prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your entrepreneurial dreams a reality. I hope you're having a fantastic day. And before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a pre-show listener shout-out to Aleph John, who left a review on iTunes saying, inspiring and eye-opening. Brandon is pushing the limits and redefining what success means. This podcast has been incredibly helpful. The content is quality and binge-worthy, a must-share. So thank you so much, Aleph John, for leaving this review. It really makes my day. And if you're listening to this right now, if you could please take a second to leave a review. I read every single one. It helps more people to discover the show, and I might give you a shout-out in a future episode. So today's guest is Steve Adams. Steve's first career was in corporate banking where over a 15-year period, he brought in nearly $500 million in new business, rising ultimately to a regional bank president role in his mid-30s. After banking, Steve's first venture was a retail organization where it was inside a new franchise pet superstore concept. Over two decades, his organization ultimately grew to 44 units in six states with approximately 750 employees and revenues of approximately $100 million. Currently, Steve is the CEO of a peak performance organization called Tiger Performance Institute, serving people just like you, my incredible seven-figure millennial listener, who are seeking peak performance, and they also serve addiction treatment centers and major university athletics programs. And Steve recently released his latest book, Unleashing the Peak Performer Within You. As you can tell from this episode, Steve has a super kind heart, he's super generous, and he's an impact-driven entrepreneur. And in this episode, you will learn how Steve went from growing up in a middle-class family with no understanding of sales and mindset to doing some of those things I mentioned in the bio, especially including how he built a business that was doing annual revenues of approximately $100 million, absolutely incredible. We also dive into how to get into flow and what that is. And in case you don't know what it is, a little teaser is when you know how to get into flow, it's been validated in research to make you 500% more productive, increase your problem-solving ability by 490%, and increase your clarity and innovation by 430%, and increase your learning and memory by 230%, just to name a few. And lastly, we also dive into how you can optimize your physiology and psychology for peak performance. So please enjoy this incredible conversation with my friend, Steve Adams. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Steve, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. Thank you, Brandon. I'm excited to be here and share with your audience. This is going to be a blast. I've been reading and diving into your book, Unleash the Peak Performer Within You, so we'll be going into lots of really fun things. But I kind of wanted to start in a place that I thought um, would be a little bit not expected because that's where, where fun interviews start. So I'm, I'm yeah. on page 86 of your book. 
And it says, when I was in college, I was on scholarship for football. A professor who knew me saw my potential and challenged me to go to the library. Remember when we did that? <laughs> to yeah. read the Wall Street Journal every day. I took, it, I took him up on it most days and it ignited a fire in my belly to learn and grow to prepare for my future in business. So I was just kind of curious because, you know, Sometimes we just have those people that show up in our lives that challenge us and inspire us yeah. and really push us in a direction. So can you tell us the story of what happened that day and why that professor challenged you that way um, when, when you were supposed to go to the library and read the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, well, how it started was his star advertising pupil was my girlfriend, <laughs> and who is now my wife now, 37 years later. Awesome. And uh, she... Um, a uh, very, uh, very successful student at university. And this guy, this professor was the guy that invented the Lincoln Mercury sign of the cat in like this sound in the 60s and 70s. It was wow. a very famous ad campaign. And uh, Dr. Ellis was the inventor. He was the guy that created that whole campaign. And so he was somebody we all looked up to on campus. And anyway, he got word that I was dating my wife, Heidi, my girlfriend at the time. And he started wanting to know he was almost like her second father and he was kind of checking me out. And, and <laughs> I, I grew up in, in the city and I had friends that uh, weren't going places like I wanted to. And so kind of like that, you know, the associate, the, the three or five people you associate most with is who you become like. And, and I mean, not that these guys were bad guys. Some of them were, some of them ended up in prison, but uh, I just didn't, I didn't speak well for someone that had the kind of potential I had. And he picked up on that and he just hit me between the eyes and he said, you know, if you want to be successful in business, you've got to present yourself better and you don't do that real well right now, but I see mm -hmm. it in you. So here's my challenge to you. Um, I want you to become a reader. And um, he told me years ago, you know, then right on the spot, readers are leaders. And, uh, you're, you know, who you're going to be five years from now really depends in big part by the kind of things you're reading, the people you're associating with. And so my challenge to you is I'm going to make it simple. Go into the library, Strohsacker Library at Northwood University, and I want you to read the Wall Street every day. So I did. I took him up on it. This was my uh, junior year, very beginning of my junior year of university. And and then as I did, I just started like, wow, this stuff's exciting. It's interesting to me. And that, that, that's, that moment is what catalyzed my, uh, my becoming a big reader. And that ended up turning into, you know, 50 to 100 books a year for now 30 some years. Wow. And uh, the other thing, it's a really cool story, though, if you don't mind me adding to the story. Go for it. Um, a year later, it's my senior year. It's the last football game of my career. We have 10 inches of snow the night before, and then it turns into a driving ice rainstorm. And it's miserable. Nobody's at the game. We're out of playoff contention. And um, I just, you know, and I'm like, I only have one speed that's wide open. And um, anyway, there was a play where a 230 pound fullback, I weighed only about 210 pounds, caught the ball in the flat. And I hit him full speed right as he caught it and knocked him six, eight feet out of bounds, broke the play up. And uh, no big deal, you know, just a play. I'm playing hard. Then I got an interception on the next play. And game's over. And about three weeks later, I'm interviewing for a job at the bank that I ultimately worked at. And Dr. Ellis saw the guy outside the interview room. He goes, listen, I want to tell you a story about this guy. 
and he repeated what I just told. He goes, mm. so while everybody else was thinking about their girlfriend and getting off the field, he was playing his guts out and you need to hire this guy. Wow. And, and I walked into the interview and the guy says, well, I guess we don't need to do the interview. And the next day I got a, I got a call with a job offer. That's so incredible. Yeah. It's always crazy to look at like the dots going backwards. Like you don't realize what happens in the moment and the repercussions of what will eventually happen in the years to come. Absolutely. So that's really one of those really cool unfolding stories. And I kind of wanted to dive in and ask, because there are certain people where if you would, because you, you said he was pretty blunt with you. He was like, hey, you're not where you need to be right now. Right. You know, he was basically interviewing you because he was the fatherly figure of your your now wife. And he was yeah. like, you're not up to par, man. You got to, you got to. So like, <laughs> what was your, what was your reaction to that? Did that piss you off? Or were you like, I'm yeah, just going to suck it up. <laughs> a, a little bit, but that was my temperament, you know? And, uh, but I always thought, you know, my, my college coach knew how to interview or uh, motivate me every year in the spring when we were done, he would tell me I was the worst athlete in the secondary. I was a free safety. And, uh, and then I'd work, 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 work. And then after my last year, we did our exit interview. Coach Finn said to me, I was just joking. I just knew how to push your button and you, you had a great <laughs> career. And, uh, so that's how I reacted to everything. And I still am that way. When somebody kind of gets in my grill a little bit, um, it causes me to reach down deep and go, you know what? It hurts, but there's truth here. I can learn from it and I can move forward. And, you know, and, and, and if you're someone who has thin skin, who can't receive that, you're not going to become, you know, all you can be. Well, Steve, I, I have to say these first few minutes of this interview have been absolutely terrible. So you really need to pick it up a little bit. So uh, What's that? I, I, I was just joking with you. Oh, you said okay. you were motivated by good feedback. So I want to tell you the interview is absolutely terrible so far. Oh, okay. The, the, well, the, the here, first story. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, so where do you think that came from? Like, were, was that something from childhood where you were always motivated by like your, your parents pushing you? Or was it something that happened in childhood that kind of made that happen and be a part of your personality? Uh, I, I can't link it into any one event as a child. Um, you know, my, my dad was a very successful guy at General Motors. Great story. He worked up from the pit, which in the late early 60s, what that meant, you were down below ground with your hands above your head all day with an air tool uh, attaching the frame to the car. So this is Michigan. You know, it's, sure. you know, cars are made here in Michigan. And uh, this was back before something called unibody where they don't do that anymore. But uh, anyway, he worked his way out of that pit and he just, you know, he grew up poor. He grew up very poor and he was just tired of being poor and he became very ambitious. And he ultimately, at, at, uh, you know, in the, in the 80s when I was in college, he was, he was managing 500 million to multi-billion dollar projects for General Motors, moving mm. production of one thing to another location. You know, and he had hundreds of people working for him and so he was just, a, he's a great leader. And I, and so I got around that. And then, you know, the other, I think, catalyzing event was I had a dream of playing college football when I was 13, 14 years old. And I realized I was tall and skinny and not very fast and I needed mm -hmm. to get better. And so I started, I started going to football camps at Michigan State University and getting around other people and seeing where I was at and realizing there was a gap. And, uh, uh, and I went to a smaller high school. We'd moved from a large school to a small one. So I had some disadvantages. And ultimately, that's why I ended up playing Division Two on scholarship instead of Division One. because later I grew up and became a very big, strong, fast guy. But 
just being, it was athletics. That's my really my punchline here was the athletics really highlighted for me uh, the deficiencies. And, and I just started to learn grit. And, mm. you know, I used to coach high school basketball and I would tell the kids, you know, all these guys are in the stands comfortable. You're finding out what your deficiencies are in front of 2000 people. Yeah. And when you go to college, you're going to be used to the feedback and be able to adjust and they're going to be confronted for the first time. And so uh, athletics really was in, integral to me developing that grit. It's funny because I've recently kind of come to the understanding that basically, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I guess there's, there's three things that I see that I've easily identified as areas that give you really quick feedback and allow you to improve yeah. really fast. There's business, there's sports. And the other one that kind of pops into my head is like stand-up comedy. Like what other chance do you have to be in front of somebody where people are either laughing or they're booing you off the stage? And right. so those, those short learning cycles I've found to be something that's really important when it comes to improving and getting to the next level. So was it your motivation for sports that eventually inspired you to go into business? Cause you kind of saw elements of that or like what ended up, how did you end up going to business when you kind of grew up with your, your dad, just kind of more at general motors and maybe not right. as in the entrepreneurial or business right. space. What, what made that jump for you or that inspiration well, for you? Well, it didn't happen overnight, but the, uh, the grit skills that I learned, you know, back as a, of, uh, an athlete, uh, transferred into the business world. Sure. And, um, the other thing I learned early was take risk, you know, so, you know, I can identify risks taken in high school, college, uh, even in my corporate banking career. So when I graduated university, I got a job at a Fortune 500 you know, major regional, super regional bank. And, um, and I uh, spent a couple of years in the management training program and then took a demotion so that I could get over into the corporate lending training program. Mm. Uh, it was like to take two steps back to take 10 forward. And um, so I did that. And then um, after, you know, kind of a slow start as a corporate lender, I started to, I start, I got a, a tape series called Lead the Field by Earl Nightingale. And I literally wore that thing out. I had about a half hour commute and I listened to it every single day, all the way to work, all the way home for two years. Wow. And it just filled my head with success thinking. And so um, I ended up creating a, uh, a system of identifying prospects uh, and consistently calling on them. And that was the thing I learned early at a young age was most people were not consistent in their performance. They were inconsistent and they didn't have a process or a system. And I, I was doing this at 25, 26 years old. And in very short order, I ended up becoming the top sales guy in the entire region and uh, developing close to $300 million in new business over about a five-year period. And the confidence I got from that uh, and all of the learning that I was doing as I was reading books, going to, you know, training seminars and listening to tapes. This was the 80s and the 90, early 90s uh, really caused me to go, you know what, I, I, I'm bigger than this opportunity. I'm becoming bigger than this opportunity, not from a, you know, a, a narcissistic standpoint or anything like that. Just. I realized if I was going to realize on my potential and apply all this stuff I was learning, I needed to get out of the corporate world and start my own business. Mm. And so that's, that's really what catalyzed it. So in my 20s, my wife and I saved. We had no debt. We had money in the stock market. We did well there. 
So we did a lot of smart things for many years that put us in a position when I was 31 to leave the bank and go start a business. And so that's what I did. It was hard. It was a tough decision because I was moving up fast. I had a secure six-figure job at a young age. And this was 95. It's not yeah. six figures now. Right. And so it was very lucrative and not easy to give up. But my why was stronger than my body's desire for inaction and comfort. So what was that conversation like with your wife then? <laughs> like when you're like, Hey, you know, we're doing fantastic. Life is great right now. We're making a ton of money and I'm just gonna, I'm yeah. not happy right now. I want to ditch it. So what was that conversation like? Yeah. Well, it wasn't one conversation. That's for sure. Well, what but, were those conversations yeah. like? <laughs> yeah, and also it was a little more backstory. I, I just had built our dream home and we had walking distance uh, um, access to Lake Michigan, a couple hundred feet of Lake Michigan beach that we could access anytime we wanted. And we had a, uh, a six-month-old son and a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. That's when I came to her and said, I want to quit this and start a business. And it looks like we're going to have to move out of state to do it. And mm -hmm. the first conversation didn't go well. And uh, so I just kept bringing back my research and my commitment to it and uh, my passion for it. I talked to several uh, kind of people who were mentors in my life about you know, was I a fit for it? Do they think I had what it took? And ultimately she went along. I mean, she supported me and I was very grateful for that. Uh, so, but, but it was hard. It was not easy. You know, um, uh, we probably don't have time to go into it all, but, uh, you know, there were a couple of tough conversations, you know, one time yeah. we went to Southern Alabama to look at a market and she just said, I'm not living down here. And so I had to find a different market. So ultimately, we ended up settled in Northeast Wisconsin by Green Bay and Appleton. That's where we actually went for our first store. Do you remember the day when you decided you were just going to jump? Because like, I, I mean, I, being completely honest, like this is fresh in my mind because it's like I left the, the company I was working with running the marketing for the past three years, had an incredible position and I left in May. And it was like, it was a crazy thing where it was similar. I had a similar experience, but I, it took me a lot to like, you know, a lot of journaling, a lot of reflecting. I went through lots of exercises yes. to make that jump. So yep. how did you decide to make that decision? Did you have a process that you went through or what was going through your head? Well, you know, remember I'm a corporate lender, so I knew how to analyze industries and businesses. So sure. I did a lot of underwriting. I went down and interviewed the uh, franchisor. Uh, I uh, talked to other people who owned the stores in this world. This was a pet superstore concept. Uh, so I spoke to several of them. And so I did my homework. I did my diligence. I knew what it was going to cost. I knew I had the money. Uh you know, I talked to my parents to hurt my wife's parents who were entrepreneurs. So that was helpful. Mm. Um, and ultimately what it came down to, my wife was, her biggest concern was I was going to be out of balance like her dad was when she was young. And mm. when I found out what her pain point was, what the big issue was, I made a commitment to her and said, look, here's my promise to you. I'm going to get home for dinner at 6 p.m. every night. Mm. And that's all it took. If I have to get up at two in the morning, I will. But I just needed to make that simple commitment to her. And I honored that without, with some exceptions periodically. Uh, but uh, that's what it took. And uh, so I didn't have one day. I remember the day I was driving home from work. I just closed a $20 million transaction. 
And that was the <laughs> moment when I was like, this is what I'm quitting. I'm leaving this. I'm going to do it on myself. If I'm smart enough to do this, I can do that. The other thing I didn't tell you was one year in particular, I brought in over $2 million worth of fees and added a million dollars a year to the profit to the entire banking, corporate banking department. And they gave me about a $6,000 bonus. That was it. And I realized then that I'm never going to create the wealth and the things that I want to do working for someone else. And so it was a couple of events like that. And, and, and then finally, I remember the day we had to drive to Milwaukee to sign the lease. And so I left work. My wife and I made the four-hour drive around the lake. And we walked into the uh, um, offices of the real estate company. Uh, and the, back then, it was the tallest building. It's, it's the U.S. Bank building downtown Milwaukee and signed the lease. Now I'm on the hook for like a half a million dollars, five-year lease. That's when it became real. We right. got in the car down in the parking ramp said, well, there's no turning back now. And we were exhilarated. It was so exciting. So what, like, I, I there's several things I want to ask. Yeah. When I, when I find that I make a big decision or I I'm really committed to something, I find that, I don't know if it's God, the universe, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes he'll just be like, are you sure you want this? Because like, here's a shiny carrot and you can kind of look at these other directions. Here's some other ways. Did you ever like, did you, did you have any of those experiences where you were like ready to make the commitment and then something happened where it kind of wavered your confidence or did you just commit and you were just like done and you were in? No, that, that happened. Uh, after I had made the commitment, at least in my core with my wife, literally three weeks later, I got a major promotion at the bank. <laughs> See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. It's like, yep. are you sure you want to leave? Cause yeah, we'll make exactly. it even better for you. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. And, um, major promotion, big pay raise, uh, got what later turned out to be worth over a million dollars of stock that I had to wow. give back. And, um, and, and I looked at it, you know, um, you know, from my personal value system, I'm a man of faith. And so I looked at that as kind of a test, you know, like, do you really trust me? Are you going to, are you going to step out on faith and do this or not? And, you know, so that was like this last attempt by the world to like snatch me and go, you know, no, this is too much. You can't leave this. And, and then, you know, after you make the commitment, you have those doubts. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I remember when we packed up the house and, uh, my brother and my father came over and I had two 26 foot moving vans with everything in it. We'd already bought the home in Wisconsin in Appleton. And I, I said, I'm going to leave a week early and I'm going to get this all set up because I was trying to make things smooth for my wife because I had two little kids. And uh, I'll never forget the picture of my, my best friend across the street and his wife and two kids um, and my wife and my two, my two kids uh, are waving at me tears coming down their eyes as I'm driving away, looking in the rearview mirror, you know, of the truck. And I remember pulling around the corner and going, wow, I hope, I, I hope I made the right decision, you know? And then 10, 15 minutes later, I'm out on the expressway and I'm just, I'm so excited. I realized I did it. I overcame the inertia, the criticism, the doubts. And, um, you know, because in the brain, you know, we have this old brain, the amygdala, which is our protector, and it's screaming, no, 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 don't do this. And our prefrontal cortex is our executive function. It's got all the cool ideas and, and, and has rationally thought this through and says, yeah, go for it. And every entrepreneur has to learn how to overcome their own biology to make these tough decisions. 
I find that when I'm most scared of doing something, that's usually an indicator of the thing that I have to do. Um, so yep. I don't know if you found that to be true yourself as well. Exactly. Uh, yep. It's when you need to step through it. Yep. Yeah. So you had mentioned briefly before, and I know from reading your book that the concept that you were so invested in, you were so excited about, it was a pet superstore. Why was that so attractive to you? And how did that show up in your life? Well, contextually, it was 1994 when I first experienced this idea. Okay. And uh, I, uh, to set the scene a little bit, I, that $20 million deal I'm talking about, well, seven, eight, nine months earlier, uh, I brought that into loan committee and, uh, but I was sick that day. I couldn't come and that was rare for me. And so my boss presented it and then I get a call from my boss saying, Hey, it was fine locally, but in Detroit, the credit, the director of credit for the whole $80 billion bank said he wanted to make a pause on it. And I was ticked. I had spent months uh, researching valuations of media properties and all this stuff, done my homework. And uh, so I get back to work, you know, the next day, find out what happened. And I went to lunch at Burger King in downtown Grand Rapids with one of my friends whose parents had owned one of these stores. And I, and I told Mike, I'm like, I'm sick of this corporate America. I'm going to quit and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get a McDonald's in North Dakota because that's probably the only place that they have them available. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was just frustrated. And he goes, no, don't do that. He goes, my dad has one of these uh, pet superstores, Pet Supplies Plus, it's called. He said, you should look at one of these. I'm like, okay. So I went into the, the store in my local community and looked at it. I went, wow, this is pretty cool. And at the time, there weren't that many of these. PetSmart and Petco and this company all together maybe had 300 of them. Now there's like 4,000 of them, you know. And, and so I started doing my homework and digging, in, and digging into it and realized, wow, this is a really great concept. Uh, uh, I liked that it was the emotional connection of the pet and the human. And the margins were good. And it was early in its development cycle. And so that's why I liked it. Um, yeah, I, I love that the pet store showed up right at a moment of frustration. It was like, it was yeah. almost like it was like, hey, here, here's, here's a thing. And it's funny because I feel like, you know, there's this, the, I mean, you know, I know you're a brain guy, so you can fact check any of this, but I, I know that there's a, the part of your brain that's <laughs> the, the, that. the, the reticular activating system where it's like once, yep. once you are aware of a goal or you have a new idea in your mind, it starts showing up more and more in your life. And it's funny that, that it's funny because opportunities probably pass us every single day, but we're just not consciously aware of them. And, and right. it just, the life just primed you. It was like, Hey, here's a crappy experience. Hey, here's a pet store. And maybe it was just like the thing that was necessary to glue it all together and actually make you make sure. that decision. Well, a little factoid for you, the, our brain is really skilled at filtering and though, yeah. and, um, my, I'm a little bit foggy on my own research for my book on this, but it's something like 4 billion bits of information per second yeah. are in our environment and our brain filters that down to just 2000 mm. and something like 75 to 80% are filtered in from the perspective of negative bias. Mm. Wow. Okay. And so that's going to prevent you from seeing opportunity. And one of the things that's great about journaling and having a gratitude journal and, um, you know, practicing what others call law of attraction, you know, somebody's of faith would say prayer or whatever. When you, when you start to 
think with more positive terms, you actually can shift that ratio and your, your brain will filter in more opportunity and positivity. And, uh, yeah, so yeah, that's incredible. And I I'm really tempted to make a huge jump in the, in the line here, but I'm going to do it just no, because it fine. seems like it, it segues really well. So in, in reading your book, we were, you know, one of, um, you, you, you've done so much research on flow. And one of the things I thought was super interesting was just a simple line where flow you used to think, or people used to think that it was more about unlocking more of your brain's potential, using more of your brain. Right. But flow, from what you said, what you discovered in the book or what you, you found in your research is that flow actually uses less of your brain. So I know this is kind of a, a really tr- rough transition into the, the, the flow and stuff. So can you maybe just share with people who are listening to this right now that don't know what flow is and add anything to, to that yeah. that I just was just talking about? Right. Well, there's, there's a lot of, not a, there actually isn't a lot of, there are not a lot of books out on flow. Uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, which is an utterly unspellable word. Uh, <laughs> what the, even was that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, he's a Hungarian researcher from University of Chicago. And then he went to the Claremont School where Peter Drucker worked. Brilliant man. He really is the godfather of popularizing what flow is. This isn't something new. It's, it's hardwired into humanity. So it's been around as long as people have. But uh, he was kind of the early pioneer in the work on this. And then um, Herb Benson wrote a book in the 90s called The Breakthrough Principle. And then Stephen Kotler is probably the most widely known writer on flow today. And the difference is those three guys come at it from a journalistic, medical, and uh, academic viewpoint. I wanted to write a book on flow that was practical, that entrepreneurs like you and I could actually incorporate into our lives and demystify it, okay? Because a Mm -hmm. lot of people mystify it you know, almost add a spiritual mystical element to it. Yeah. Flow really at the end of the day is when you can sit at your desk for a 90 minutes or two hours and never take your, never go off task. Like you're on task on one really important priority that you have and you are completely absorbed in it and it fits you know, you have the skills to meet the challenge. It's not overwhelming to you. It's something where you've got just the right amount of skill and you're nailing it. Okay. And people tend to get more flow where they have expertise. Okay. So that, that could be like playing the violin or be running a run, doing a long distance run where you have a hobby and you've developed expertise in it. You can get a lot of flow there. And you can get a lot of flow in your work when you've got expertise in it. So for you, you have a marketing background. So for you, you're going to get more flow when you're working on designing a marketing system than you are in, you know, I don't know, uh, figuring out your accounting, which probably bores you to tears. So absolutely. <laughs> um, and so the the thing that people, your listeners, need to know is don't make flow complicated. Flow is when you have dedicated some time. And it's work that you have expertise in and you dive in and you can stay there for 90 minutes to two hours at a time. Okay. So what happens though, there's a neurobiological signature to flow and that is norepinephrine and, uh, um, well, we're going to skip all that. We're not going to talk about the neurotransmitters. Uh, we're not going to get lost in that, but what's unique about flow is when you go work your way through there's a cycle to it. But when you work your way through a flow cycle, it's the only time when these five powerful neurotransmitters are all operative 
and they're more powerful than any manufactured drug. Okay. And they, what their job is to do is to get you like this zoned in and doing your best work. And so when you're in flow, you're doing your best work and you feel great. Now let's work backwards. um, Brandon, what, what the reason I wrote the book is, is that the research says most people are getting less than an hour of actual real flow a month. Mm. And the reason is, yeah, the reason is we are in this always on, always available, massively distracted digital culture that really shifted in 2007, excuse me, with the advent of the iPhone. And so now people are looking at their phone 80 times an hour, which is called task switching, which Mm-hmm. drains our battery, which is our, our brain has, it's like a battery. It's called cognitive load. And we only have so much cognitive bandwidth every day. And, and so if you drain it, making tons of irrelevant decisions and always on your phone, now you are incapable of flow. And that's why people aren't getting very much of it anymore. And so what ends up happening then is now you do basic low value ad work. And the danger in that is, is all of the converging technology and AI is going to eliminate that kind of work. And so my challenge in the book is I'm trying to help people do two things. One, accelerate their ability to learn and apply new information. And secondly, help them sustain elite levels of performance. And so with our clients that we work with, Brandon, our promise to them is we're going to help you get at least an hour of flow every day of the week, five days a week. So think about the gargantuan competitive advantage you now have against your competitors. If they're getting flow one hour a month and you're getting 20 hours or 40 hours. So uh, that that's flow. And, and, and the idea though, to get into it, you've got to do some things. You have to optimize your physiology, which is your health. And you got to optimize your psychology. And you also have to do some engineering of your life. And so that's really if I were to do a broad brush of the book is it teaches you how to do those three things, that three legged Mm -hmm. stool. Yeah. And what I loved going through the book too, is that I like your, you said in the beginning, the flow or getting in the zone, as many people refer to it as like, it does seem like kind of like a mystical concept. And I was very happy to see going through your book that it's like not as complicated as you may think it is. And right. the the things that you need to do are kind of the core foundational things of living a happy lifestyle anyways. And the, the right. side of the, the, the additional thing that you add is like, people talk about health, they talk about nutrition, they talk about getting good sleep, they talk about good mindset and that kind of stuff. But the fact that you combined the physiology, the uh, psychology, and then leveraging that as a means to get into flow to increase your productivity, I think was a really unique approach. So I really did enjoy that perspective. So um, I know that there's so much we can dive into. So we already mentioned there's, there's three there's three parts that are in the book, the physiology, the psychology, which helps you get into flow. So I know we don't have time to dive into like every component of it, but if sure. maybe we could do like a kind of an 80-20 of the physiology and the, the uh, yep. psychology component of it, then we could just start right. from there. Yep. Well, the 80-20 on the health side is um, we have eight health habits for elite health in there. And they're very simple. You want to learn how to do heart rate variability, uh, breathing, train your heart rate variability which will give you more focus and flexibility and resilience. Um, you want to learn, you want to meditate. 
Uh, Can we, I'm going to pause you for a second there. So, so HRV, this is something you have a really good explanation in the book of how you explain yep. HRV. It's like a rubber band analogy. Can you maybe, yep. for those of us that don't know what that is, explain what that is? Yeah. So heart rate variability is just the, the variability between the timing of your heartbeats. So when you breathe in, your heartbeat speeds up. When you breathe out, it slows down. And the measurement is beat to beat the differences in those peaks and valleys and the, the way to look at this is life comes at us in a highly variable way, correct? I mean, there's no smooth right. days in the world, okay? Just think of 2020, pandemic, social unrest, political division, election, contested election. That's one year, okay? Yeah. In addition to the little mini stories going on in everybody's individual lives. So uh, life comes at, to a, at us in a very uh, variable way. And if we have a rigid heartbeat, meaning it only beats perfectly one beat per second, there's no variability, that's akin, that's like having a rubber band that's old and brutal. And any type of challenge to you is going to cause that rubber band to snap. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're just not going to be resilient. You're not going to be able to overcome setbacks. Someone who has high heart rate variability, basically bring it on. Anything that comes at me, I have the resources on the inside to to fight through whatever I've got to fight through. And high heart rate variability is correlated with good mental health, with longevity, and with uh, high performance. Poor HRV is correlated with nine of the leading 10, nine of the 10 leading causes of death in America, poor mental health, and poor performance. Yeah. And am I correct? I mean, this is just something that I've synthesize or at least heard from many different podcasts. I don't even know where it came from. Is that yep. like, if you're going to measure or pick just a few biometric things to pay attention to that HRV is one of the highest things that you should be paying attention to. Yep. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. I, I would say two things. If, if you measured your sleep architecture and understand that, and you understand your HRV, you're going a long way toward uh, optimizing your health. So you know, in the book, I talk about HRV and sleep and uh, movement and eating clean and time-restricted eating. So if you get the book, I tried to make it really simple and it, it's not proscriptive. You don't have to do this. It teaches you the principle and says, now you're smart. Go figure out how to make that work for you. Mm -hmm. And then on the psychology side, I, you know, the, everybody in peak performance, most people are focused on the psychology mental game. I'm not diminishing it at all, but there's a, but very few people are paying attention to the medical physiological side. Mm -hmm. So on the, on the psychological side, I tried to be concise and say, look, if you've got a growth mindset and you own your results and you have a high level of belief in what you're doing, and then you apply grit to it, you're, you're 80%, that's the 80, 20 right there of the psych mm -hmm. side. And because the flow has a cycle, okay? There's a struggle phase. Everybody has to go through that where you're gaining expertise and you're, or you're gaining ground on a project and you have to struggle. And then there's a release phase. And this is why my company with our clients, we teach people, you have to oscillate during your day, meaning work hard, meditate, take a break, go for a walk, work hard, go do your hobby for an hour, come back, work hard. And the reason we do that is I'm building into your day the opportunity for those breakthroughs out of the struggle phase. Right. Okay. And then you go into flow. And then when you're done with the flow, you're tired and you got to go into recovery. Okay. And so 
if you don't have a growth mindset, you won't, you won't work your way through the struggle phase. You'll quit. So mm-hmm. that's why the psychology is so important because you won't even get to flow if you don't have this winning positive psychology. Have you heard of the four stages of competence before? It's <laughs> um, vaguely familiar. It's, it just reminds me of like what you're talking about as far as like being able to get in flow because there, and I might butcher this, but like the very first part of the learning cycle is uh, unconscious incompetence where it's like you don't even know oh, yes. what yes. there is to know. And then you move to conscious incompetence where you start to realize like, oh, there's stuff I don't know, but now I'm aware of it. And then it's like the next part is conscious competence where it's like you have the kid that can tie their shoe, but they have to like use every single part of their brain to get it. And then it moves to unconscious competence, I believe, where it's like you're able to just do something without even thinking about it. So when I was reading about your flow cycles, it kind of reminded me of the four stages of competence and that it's like the beginning is the struggle where you really kind of, you can't really get into flow because it's like you suck at it. (laughs) You have to kind of power through that. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that's important, um, there's a concept that I want to talk about is the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So this Mm. is why it's important to have hobbies outside of your professional life, because you've developed expertise in something just out of sheer interest. Right. And, And so for me, those are hiking and running. Those are two primary flow activities for me outside of work, where when I do those, uh, I get into flow a lot because I'm, I, you know, I know how to get out in nature and get and just block everything out. But the running is a good one for me because that's a grit skill. You got to like fight through it and all of that. Um, for someone else, it could be literally a craft or it can be going to the cafe too. Okay. And just relaxing. So, uh, so the more you do some of those things that you're interested outside of work, that'll help you get into flow in work. Yeah. And you're right. So someone like me who is 35 years out of college and been a business guy my whole life, I'm going to get more flow than somebody 25. Okay. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you can't get at it as a millennial, as a young person. Um, so whatever you're, whatever you're, this is why it's so important to do something you're passionate about that you can see yourself doing for a long time, because the most successful people I see do something for a long time. They play the long game. And part of the reason the long game pays off is because you develop such insight and expertise in an area. And, and now if you can combine that with some of the things I'm talking about in my book, you're going to get massive amounts of flow. Okay. Yeah. One thing I realized, Brand, I didn't answer your question earlier about less of the brain. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very simple. That is, it's an, it's an, it's an efficiency exchange. So what's yep. happening is the old days, the, the pundits, the gurus used to say, Man, if you could just, they, they, would, they would hypothesize that we're only using 10% of our brain. So if you could use 15%, now you're going to really have all these great insights and success. Well, now with brain imaging, the realization is, is the reality is all your brain is being used all the time. Okay, you're not reserving 80% because you're a lackey. Um, and so when you get into flow, what's actually happening, and I've seen this uh, in the research I've done, I've seen imaging where they show the brain in flow and it actually gets quieter in the front. It's called transient hypofrontality, where it, transient means temporary, uh, hypo means much lower frontality. So the, that prefrontal cortex gets quiet, the inner critic goes away because we all have that. Right. 
and and you just go. And so like when I was writing my book, I had days where I wrote an entire chapter in like an hour, hour and a half. And it was amazing. And then I would come yeah. out of that and go for a walk with my wife and I couldn't stop running my mouth because I was so excited. Yeah. So is it accurate to say that flow is actually just, a, it, I don't want to oversimplify it, but no, it's essentially simple. like, a, it's, it's like a hyper filter is essentially what it is. It's like that you have reached such a level of competence and that you're in the zone and you're blocking out all forms of distraction. And so it's like, it's really a brain's ultra filter where it's like, I'm only going to focus on this and I'm going to block everything else out and just yep. stay right here. Right. That's a good, I, I like it. That's a good, that's a workable answer. And And the thing about it is, is you can engineer your life to live a high flow lifestyle in work and outside of work. And when people do, they have a lot more meaning and well-being in their life. Yeah. Which would ties to what your kind of your goal with this podcast is. Yeah. Thank you. And and, um, there are a few things I want to dive into. My brain is kind of going all over the place. But one of the things that you said was the fact that you are able to drop more into flow once you have other hobbies outside of your, your, your traditional work. Yep. Do you think that that's just because your brain is more accustomed to dropping into flow in different contexts that it just like is trained to be able to get into that state or what, or why do you think that is that you're able to get into flow more often once you're able to do more, you're in, invested in more activities? Yeah. And I, and I wouldn't say it's quantity, Brandon. I would just say it's quality. It's, it's, sure. it's, it's practice. It, it's you, you uh, find something you're interested in and you practice being absorbed in something Yeah. rather than having the attention span of a gnat because you're <laughs> on this phone all the time. That was my favorite phrase to my kids in high school was, you know, I, I actually made them read classic works of literature mm-hmm. in high school and, uh, write a little two-page book summary, and I'd pay them fifty bucks a book. And the reason I did it, I was just trying to train them to train their own attention because uh, they were the first generation. They were in high school between two thousand and eight and two thousand and thirteen. My two kids, they were the first ones that went through the digital revolution with the iPhones. Yep. And I was watching what it was doing to their brain, and I was just like, "This is not good." And and so. What you know, one of the best gifts that you can give your audience here is if they can learn how it's not time management, it's focus management now. Yep. And so by developing these hobbies, you're training your brain to be focused on one thing because you're super interested in it. Yep. And that's one of the triggers to flow is 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 that that intrinsic motivation to pursue something. And so the more you do it on the outside, the more ability you'll have to do it on the in, you know, when you're doing your work. And then like what I talk about in the book, there's just some things you need to do to set up your environment so that you can do this. Yeah, I know there's a study and I'm not remembering where it's from, but like studies have shown that if your phone is even near you while you're doing your work, it doesn't even have to, it can be powered off. If it's sitting on top of your desk, we've just been so trained to use it that the quality of our work diminishes by simply having our phones in our presence. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, I saw the research too. And um, um, Adam Grasley, the PhD from University of San Francisco writes on that and his book called The Distracted Mind. And uh, he, uh, I actually put my phone in a drawer out of sight when I, yep. when I have my flow blocks. 
And uh, I'm not perfect at it. Once in a while, I'm I'm pretty I'm so good at it now though. I can still do it, and it's sitting there. But then I get mad at myself. Like, what are you doing? You just wrote the book on this, and you got this stupid phone on your desk. You know? So uh, <laughs> there's a there's a toy. Uh, my my mentor Jonathan's obsessed. I don't want to call it a toy. It's not a toy, but it's something called a K safe. And like you can set a timer on it and it's designed for like addictive things. Like, you know, if you're addicted to um, playing video games, you can put your remote, you can put your, your uh, gaming remote inside of this container, turn a dial for five hours and press the button and then it locks. And then you literally can't access it unless you like smash the whole thing on the ground. And so <laughs> some people, use, some people use the K-Safe as like a, a anti-phone device where it's like, okay, I'm going to focus for three hours. I'm going to lock my phone in this thing. And I, li- if somebody called me, I literally couldn't take it out. So wow, kind of that's a, great. A, <laughs> yeah. A fun thing. Um, there, there are a bunch of open loops that I want to close. One of them is we were, we were talking about HRV before, and I feel like for some people that may not be inside of the, the, the biohacking world and that kind of stuff, they're like, you know, you just said it was interesting. You said it was the most important thing to track, but like, how do you track your HRV? So, uh, I know you and I both use the aura ring as far as tracking that kind of stuff, but, um, how, how is, is that the number one thing that you recommend or how, how can somebody go about tracking their HRV? Yeah. Well, the Apple watch tracks it. Uh, I didn't know that. Yep. Yep. Apple watch tracks it Fitbit, I believe does, but the accuracy levels aren't as good as the aura ring. And, uh, and remember the HRV is, is a, is a number that it's not so much the number you're interested in, it's in the trend and you want to upward wow, okay, trend. To okay. Cause my HRV at my age is going to be lower than yours at your age. Uh, or if I'm fit and active, I'm going to have a higher HRV than someone who's sedentary. Okay. Sure. So, uh, yeah, uh, those are all devices that can work. Uh, my company, what we use, we use heart math for training HRV, we use Aura Ring to measure HRV because mm. we we like the passive collection of it. Because uh, when you use a when you use a device in a session, that's a temporary reading. Right. Uh, what I like about the Aura Ring is it gives us an average over a seven, eight, nine hour night. And then um, we have a dat we have an app for our company where we integrate that into our app, and then our coaches. When they meet with our clients, they actually review their history and talk to them because the way you elevate HRV is diaphragmic breathing using a biofeedback device so that you know you're getting into something called coherence. But you also, uh, HRV is driven by gratitude practice and meditation. It's driven by nutrition. It's driven by fitness. It's driven by mm-hmm. sleep. There's mul- It's multifaceted. And also your ability to disarm stress on demand. And so these are all things we teach our clients so that they can become their own best coach. Uh, mm. So that, that that would be my answer on HRV. Yeah. We're, what we try to do is take, you know, I think me and you had this conversation, you know, there's the Dave Asprey's of the world, which are phenomenal, but most people don't have the time to be a nerd in this stuff. They just right. want the results. And so that's what we've tried to do in my company is, eliminate all that and go, here's what you got to do. We're going to make it easy for you. We're going to get you results. Yeah. So I anyway, love that. Go ahead and close some more loops. Oh no, no, it was actually a perfect lead into the other loop I wanted to close is because we jumped right from you doing the pet store to, to right into flow. And so I think there's probably lots of people that are listening right now. It's just like, okay, how did he get from a pet store to all this crazy stuff? So yeah, good you, question. So, so you were in the pet store, you ran that and you, I mean, you crushed it, you helped grow. So maybe just share a little bit about the growth yeah. of that company and what led you to sell it and start yep. getting into so the, 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 work the, the things I did right was I had the ability to take on risk and have ambition 
Um, I built a great team. No one builds a big company on their own. So you get a guy on a show that says, I did this all by myself. They didn't. And uh, right. so we ended up growing uh, uh, to uh, nearly 50 stores, over $100 million of revenue. We had around 800 employees. And, and, and we were in six states. And so for me, uh, I was the, there was three of us for most of that time, core partners. And one partner did the business and another one did the real estate. And my job was I had all the people. So I was the operate, I, I ran operations as CEO. And so I had to travel a lot. So I had about, I don't know, six, seven years in a row where it was over 125 nights a year on the road. Wow. And prior to that, it was about 50. And, and I just ignored my physiology. And what ended up happening was I burned out. I, I got to 2017 and I could I was numb. I was tired. I was irritable. I was getting three hours sleep a night, even though I was in bed for seven. Nothing was working. And uh, we had an NFL quarterback that was a celebrity endorser uh, for our company, uh, Kirk Cousins, who's the quarterback of the Vikings. And uh, I asked him about this. Um, you know, cause I asked him, how do you handle the stress? And he goes, man, I got this phenomenal brain coach. And so I, I called the guy, my son was also in college struggling with ADD and performance anxiety as a college pitcher, baseball pitcher, athlete on scholarship. And, and so we both signed up with this guy and that's when I started learning all this science. And, and, and this guy, I originally wanted to partner with him, but I couldn't, um, and eventually he's like, I don't want a big, I got my little niche, uh, but I'll, I'll teach you everything I know, you know, and I, so I went on that journey of recovering from burnout. So I actually sold my shares to my partners and took a year off and basically rebuilt me from the ground up. I basically did everything that's in my book. I did in 18. Um, I had been studying this stuff going back five, six years, but I wasn't applying any of it. and. And so I got way better. And so it was out of that experience of burning out, almost crashing my marriage, that Tiger Performance Institute was born. And so my whole goal now, this thing's like a passion and a mission for me. I don't need to do this. I want to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my whole goal now is I want to optimize people's performance so that they don't have that experience I had. And, and in the process of preventing their physiology to break down. I'm also wanting to help them learn flow and unlock potential that they don't even realize they have today. So that that's kind of my vision for Tiger Performance Institute. I, I love that. And I know like the earlier version, it, it's funny because like I know the earlier version of yourself, you had described yourself in the book as kind of like the go, go, go. You can rest when you're dead kind of a guy. So yep. like yep. what what would you, what would you, what would Steve today say to younger version of Steve that, that was actually in that mindset of hustling and grinding and sure get, getting three hours of sleep a night. <laughs> I, I would tell him, don't be an idiot. Uh, <laughs> the, that, that you can still do, you can still be very successful and oscillate your effort. Mm. Uh, I, I would have had sustainable peak performance if I would have learned how to, um, do, do, you know, actually accomplish more by doing less. That's yeah. kind of a big uh, point we make with our clients and I try to make in the book is that you can actually do accomplish way more by trying to do less. Okay. Cause like if you can get two or three hours of flow on Monday, you're getting more done than everybody else is getting done in a week. When I say right. done, I don't mean tasks. I mean, real deep work stuff. Mm -hmm. That's going to get you paid. 
So that, that's what I would say is, is, you know, um, I, I, obviously there is a time and a season where we do have to grind. Okay. I'm not going to be this Pollyanna guy that says four hour work week and all that, not to tear down Tim Ferriss, because what he's really trying to do is give you a mindset, not literally a four hour work week. But uh, there are seasons in your life where you do have to get out of balance. But if you're going to play the long game, you've got to learn how to oscillate your effort. The other thing that's going on, Brandon, we're living in an environment that is unlike anything we've any of us have ever lived in. There are 12 major technologies that are converging at the same time. Stephen Kotler and Peter Diamandis in their book, The Future is Faster Than You Think, say and talk about how there's going to be 100 years of technological change just in the 2020s. Mm-hmm. And that's going to blow up business models, entire careers. And people are not ready for it. They're distracted. They're sick. You know, they're burned out and, and they're trying to attack that with an incremental linear approach. And we're in an exponential world now and flow is an exponential tool. And so if you want, if you want to really thrive in this environment, you've got to learn flow and learn how to do less and get more done. I love that because I, I do think that there's lots of innovation that comes with constriction, with restraints, with being put inside of a container and saying, hey, let's not, if you had to grow your business 10 times and you couldn't add, work 100 hours a week, what would that look like? You know, it, it would really yep. make sure that you were, you were narrowing in on the really the most important things. And that's actually interesting too, because you talk a lot in your book about goal setting and how goal setting is actually directly correlated with being able to get into flow. Because if you're sitting and trying to plan what you're supposed to be doing right before a work session, you're just not ready to drop right into that. So um, I know we're, we're recording this right now. It's, de- it's December 17th. So I don't know when, when this will be before or after the new year, but um, maybe if you could share some of the goal setting practices that you've developed over the years to help us get into more flow, I think that'd be very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I call it the, the goal stack and uh, it really, what you got to do before you can do a goal stack for 2021 You've got to get extreme clarity. And so what, what I teach clients is you got to have a transformative purpose. So you got to go to work on what is, you know, my, ours is we want, we want to optimize people's performance so that they can thrive in this new world. Okay. So you got to have a perform, you have to have a purpose that gets you excited. Mm-hmm. All right. And it can, you can tweak the wording, all that as time goes by, you get more and more clear, but get a purpose that gets you excited. The second piece then is you want to develop a set of core values, okay? And these are like one word, one word, like one of mine is autonomy. I want autonomy in my life. Another one is growth. I want to continually grow. Um, You want to get five to seven words that, um, (coughs) excuse me. You want to get five to seven words that describe who you are as a person And I always like to teach people, add a tagline that describes what that means to you in a way that's motivational. Mm -hmm. Okay, so autonomy. Uh, I want to wake up every day and live the life I want to live. Okay, so you get these five to seven words that describe who you are. You've got a purpose. Now you're in a position to set goals because what happens, there's a great book I read several years ago called The Confidence Gap. 
where the, the psychologist said the reason people don't achieve their goals and have confidence problems is, is they're trying to do things that aren't in alignment with who they are, who their core values are. Yeah. So alignment equals velocity. That's right. So when you get that alignment, now you can go fast. So, mm -hmm. uh, so the next step after purpose and core values is set high, hard goals. The research out there is clear. Setting these goals that are a stretch for you will actually amp up your day-to-day -day motivation. Okay. So set high, hard goals. These are multi-year goals. Okay. So where you want to be with your business brand in three years or five years from now, that would be high, hard goals. Now you're ready to set the goals for 2021. So look at your high, hard goals. Look at your core values, what your purpose is and go, what are my goals for 2021 for the whole year? Get those written down. They have to be written down. That catalyzes that reticular activation system, does all kinds of good things. And then the next step you want to do is go, okay, now what are my priorities each quarter of 2021? First quarter, second, third, fourth. You can't put them all in the first quarter. Otherwise, nothing's a priority. You right. got you to gotta sequence them. In my book, I talk about the difference between a synergistic activity and a sequencing activity. You know, put the things on the front end that reinforce each other. Those are called synergistic. Uh, so you get your priorities by quarter. And now what you do is before each month, so in the end of December, what I'm going to do is look at all of that and go, okay, what are my priorities for January? I'll get those listed. These are tasks now. They're not necessarily goals. Goals and tasks can be interchangeable at that level. And then what I do, some people do it Friday night. Some people do it Saturday. I like Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. I get up early mm -hmm. and I look at my month priorities. I look at the whole thing, the whole goal stack. But then I go, what am I going to do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday? And so from my monthly priorities, no matter what Sunday of the month it is, I look at the update. What have I got done? What have I got left? And I literally go on Tuesday, I'm going to do these three things. On Wednesday, these three or five, usually three to five priorities. Yeah, I love that. Every day. What I do Mondays is I have all my meetings on Monday, so I don't have to have any more meetings with internal people or whatever. Uh, so that Tuesday through Friday is all get into flow, get important stuff done. So then what I do is I build a time block for each day of the week. So my time blocks work like this. I get up at 5.30 and then from 6.30 to 8.30 is my first flow block. And then I have another one from 9.30 to 10.30. Uh, and then I have another one from 11 to 12. So I've got two hours three and a half, I got four hours of four and a half hours of flow in the morning and I get that four days a week. Mm. So the, cause here's the important thing is on Tuesday morning, when I come downstairs after I've done my workout and other things in the first hour, I sit at my desk. I look at my thing. It says very specifically what I'm doing from six thirty to eight thirty. I drop right into flow. So that's the whole, that's called the goal stack. You start from annual all the way down to what am I doing on Tuesday? Yeah. I love that. And I love the blinders focus too, that it's like the Sundays are you solidifying your understanding of how your daily tasks are tied into the bigger picture. And then like it, it, it gets overwhelming to think about this three to five year goal. But when you can look at it, I think you give the example inside of the book of the guy that eats airplanes yeah. <laughs> or something one like bite that. At like, a time. One yeah. bite at a time, just like eating an elephant. It's just like, it's not as intimidating when, when your goal is 
like you said, they're kind of interchangeable with tasks at a certain level where it's like, hey, I'm just going to get these three to five things done. And that's it. I find that three to five is my magic number as well. Just because it's like you have this to do list that never ends and you have to engineer wins into your day. If you're allowing mm-hmm. yourself to fail every single day because your to do list is is got another 15, 30 things at the end of it, then you're just going right. to feel like you never made any progress. <laughs> One of the things I love, I say it to myself every day, but I preach this like I like a itinerant preacher. And that is what you want to do is win the day. Okay. Win the day. Um, all of the problems that we have are when we look backwards and ruminate about mistakes. And when we look forward and worry about our future and what we need to do is live in the deep now. Mm-hmm. And one of the cool things about uh, the goal stack, starting with purpose to values, to high heart goals, to annual goals, all the way down is that if you do that well, and you, and you are very strategic about it. Now you can just trust the process. Okay. Yeah. And the thing is, is what I want to do is, um, I like, I, I like this formula and that is clarity times goals times flow deployed against those goals times time equals how you do the impossible mm. or how you do un- amazing things because it's the compound effect. Okay. And, and what most people can't do is they cannot sustain that winning the day attitude every day. They have good days, bad days, and that slows everything down. But if you've done your homework and you know the direction, the intentional future that you want, and you're clear about it, and you've engineered it into your day, well, today's Thursday. I just have to win Thursday, okay? And then I got to win Friday, and then I got to win Monday. And when you do that time, week, day after day after day, what happens is you start to look around and go, holy crap, I'm getting a ton of done. I'm actually mm-hmm. delivering a lot yep. that if I was in and out hyper and distracted, you wouldn't see that progress. So yep. win the day is such a key concept. I love that. And, and I, I know we're, we're probably running up on time here really quick. And I wanted to ask, do you have a process for reviewing your wins? Because like, I feel like that's really important too, is because if you're constantly measuring against this goals that you're never going to achieve uh, and not actually looking back at how far you've come, it's, you're going to feel like you weren't able to do anything. <laughs> right. It shows up in two places. One is I have a uh, evening ritual uh, when I quit. So I kind of quit around four o'clock every day um, and go for a walk with my wife, whatever. The, the ritual is, is now I, I just go evaluate. How did I do on my time blocks? Did I get everything done? You know, what, did, what distractions did I allow in my life that caused me not mm-hmm. to do that? What can I learn to not repeat this mistake? So I do that. And most of the days I get through it and I kind of celebrate. I shut, I, I do it by print. I still, I don't do my, my planning on electronic. I use a, I write it out. Um, I shut it up. I peak for tomorrow. What am I doing tomorrow? Close it up. And then when on Sunday mornings, that's where I see the scorecard because I'm planning the next week and how am I doing with my monthly priorities? Cool. Um, I have a question that I personally just really wanted to ask you uh, because I struggle with it. So hopefully some other people will find this valuable that are listening too. So I (laughs) I don't know if it's just because I'm an alien, but sometimes I get so excited about the work that I'm going to do the next day. And I like, I'm like really amped up about it. I know it's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to be really in flow and like, it'll cause me to wake up at 3 a.m. <laughs> and I just start thinking about like what I want to do. I'm like, is it time to work yet? And I don't know if it's just because I'm like a crazy. So like, how do you manage being able to shut off and uh, like actually be able to sleep and get rest with 
still making sure that you're maintaining a level of excitement and happiness about what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's anybody that's got as an entrepreneur with a dream that that's going to be a challenge. I still right. have that myself. <laughs> um, but you know, what I've learned is, is I know that process I just described sounds neurotic, but I mean, like Kirk, you know, I saw his off season schedule. He had it blocked by 15 minute blocks, the entire wow. off season in an Excel spreadsheet. Hey, when you get to, if you want top 1% results, you got to do what 99% of people are not willing to do. Mm -hmm. And the one I've gotten around elite people, they're all like this. They all do something that, wow, you're crazy. I'd never do that. Well, that's why they're there. So that being said, that process that I just described for you, Brandon, actually helps me turn it off because I trust sure. that I've trust planned it. it. It's there. Don't worry about it. That's number one. The second thing is uh, oscillating your effort, getting out in nature, run, you know, walking, being fit, moving every day. That helps turn the brain off too. And then the third area would be learn how to do diaphragmic breathing, HRV breathing, because what, what I do, um, I rarely wake up anymore at 3 a.m., uh, but when I do, I'll do three or four minutes of that breathing and then I'm out. Mm. So it's a little tool. Uh, what I, what we teach our clients is do five to 10 minutes of that diaphragmic breathing before you go to bed. And then it really sets you up for a great night's sleep. Yeah. And if you want a resource on, on how to do that, I think like I was at the genius network annual event. If you search four, seven, eight breathing, uh, by Dr. Peter, Dr. Weil, Andrew Weil. I think he, he, he has a really good video on, on how to do kind of what uh, we're talking about here is doing that, yep. that deep breathing, the belly breathing and making sure that you're That's right. breathing properly. Cause most people don't breathe correctly, which was kind of a mind shattering thing for me to realize is the right. thing that you're, yeah. you're doing all day. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> Correct. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been such a blast. I know people are going to be able to take this and, and really just I, I encourage everybody to check out Unleash the Peak Performer within you if you're watching the video so you can hear um, and, and dive deeper into all the things that Steve has researched. I think you said you reviewed over 500 peer-reviewed articles in order to do this book, right? I so. did. I, I read them all and then used, I don't know, I don't have the exact number, about 130 of them is actual cited research in my book. And okay. if you look at the bibliography, it's like 21 pages long. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, if I, I'm going to ask you a question I haven't asked someone because I want to experiment with it. I think you're a good person to experiment sure. with it on. So Shoot. if if you're sitting in a coffee shop and a future version of yourself walks in, so they're, they're, they're 10, 15 years older than you are now, yep. what advice would your future version of yourself give you today? Uh, believe in what you're doing. You're going to impact a lot of people in a positive way. Uh, stick with your disciplines because the future one is going to be 70 years old and still growing, learning, running, active with his grandkids, um, all of that. So those are the kind of things that he would say to me today. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. It's just like, a, it's just a reminder of like, you're doing the right things. Just stick, stick with what you already got going on and you're going to, you're going to end up there. It's just a confidence in your process. Sure. And I, 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 well, I love Brandon, hearing a lot of people get to the five yard line metaphorically and quit. And they're yep. so close to success and they don't even realize it. And so you just got to keep going. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And cool. do you mind if I share where you get the book if people are wanted? Or yes, you, yes, absolutely. Yeah, very simple. If you just go to tigerpi, so T-I-G-E-R-P-I dot com slash book. That's simple. It's right there and it's free. You just pay for the shipping and you can get the book at home. The, the awesome. print version. Yep. 
Love that. Yeah. Highly. I I've, I've went through it. I, I have gone through it. Please make sure to check it out. Really, really powerful, especially if you're looking at optimizing and if you're a top performer, listening to this, which I know lots of top performers are, uh, make sure to check that out. Uh, last question for you that I, that, that I think is a lot of fun to ask if you could kind of put this all on a bumper sticker of what we talked about today and people could only take away like one main thing, what would you want to be on that bumper sticker? Win the day. Win the day. Love it. Yep. Awesome. Cool. Well, besides the tigerpi.com slash book, any other places people can go to check out what you're working on? I would say just go to our website, tigerpi.com. And uh, the best thing to do is book a session with me. Uh, I'm not going to hard sell you. I, I can explain some of your questions. And we have multiple entry points for different budgets of people if they want to if they want to get some more in-depth training. We have an online course that basically takes my book and goes on steroids. Uh, really goes deep on flow and how to achieve it. Uh, and then we have some, we have a, we have a base program that'll help people eliminate stress on demand before we get into the higher end coaching programs. So, uh, tigerpi.com. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Steve. We'll make sure that that's all linked up in the show notes when those go out. I really appreciate your time. This has been a blast and thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome, Brandon. I appreciate it very much. Thank you.